Welcome to a special edition of Newton's Laws of Sports. This is part two with my guest, Jordan Villalone. As Jim Valvano once said, and I paraphrase, if you laugh, cry, and think, that's a heck of a day. We laughed and we thought as we discussed Jordan's experience working for two professional sports teams, as well as the social justice movement. I know my show is about sports, but I found it important to not just stick to sports. I hope you enjoy this episode, but more importantly, I hope those that listened learned something, because I sure as heck learned a lot from Jordan. And now to my conversation with Jordan Bill alone. Now let's get into dive into your professional experience. I've... I looked you up on LinkedIn. I had to do my research. I noticed that you interned for the Highland Street Foundation. Talk about what your primary responsibilities were for your internship. Uh, I can't say enough about the Highland Street Foundation. They were an incredible pivot for my career. They we did a lot of community relations work. Um, and this was a good uh, transition for me as I was doing, like I mentioned, some things with the Barry Price Fisher Club, where we were providing things for our local communities. The Highland Street Foundation hosts two incredible programs uh, that are really their cornerstones. One is Free Fun Fridays, where every Friday for the entire summer, different museums and venues are completely free to everyone and anyone and everyone, Massachusetts or New England residents and beyond. So we partnered with museums like MFA, Peabody, Peabody Essex, and you know, the list goes on. And we, each Friday there were about 10 uh, muse, uh, museums and venues open. So by the end of the, the summer, there were 90 free venues for children and parents to go for free and continue that learning that sometimes is slowed down uh, when you're not in an academic setting of uh, school in the summertime. That was a really incredible program. And then the other one was the Tadpole 10, where we would go to the Tadpole Pond in uh, the Boston Common uh, Park. Um, and we would facilitate different readers to children anywhere from the age of four and up uh, four pretty much to, to seven or eight. Those were really incredible. So, you know, I was just in charge of making sure uh, all logistical things were in place. So we would bring snacks, we would uh, prep our banner. I was made sure, I was ensuring that our banners were uh, reaching their different um, museums every Friday. I was um, making sure site uh, sites were set up accordingly. So that was uh, really incredible. Uh, time with them. How did you get into the internship or who led you there? Honestly, my girlfriend and I were hunting for opportunities in the summer. Um, looking back, I don't know if she wanted me to intern or not go to Miami uh, for the summer. Um, but anyway, I stumbled upon that. I was really motivated after one of the speaker series that I was a part of at LaSalle where a gentleman came over and he happened to work for professional sports and he just spoke about what is possible to do within 
professional sports and the community. So I saw this and I was like, wow, I wonder what I got to put on my resume to be in position to be considered for this. And the Highland Street was uh, more than more than qualified to meet those requirements and polish me for roles to come. Now the Highland Street Foundation, from what it sounds like, you got to facilitate some things with the Boston Parks and Recreation Department, as well as the Red Sox. Now, who were some of the contacts that you met through there and who did you get to talk to the most during that time? Yeah. Uh, thanks to the Highland Street Foundation, I was rubbing elbows with but, uh, uh, CFO of the Boston Red Sox and, you know, just in close communications. But one of, one of the uh, persons that I really had a good relationship with that didn't take long to make was this gentleman named, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> Adam Whitfield. And he, me and him just hit it off. He would all, often talk to me about career opportunities and how to pivot what I was currently doing into the professional realm. Um, he's no longer with them, but we still have a relationship for sure. Now, let's transition. You get to work for uh, my favorite basketball team, the Boston Celtics. Describe working for the Boston Celtics in a community relations role. I always say you, you're, you're working at the professional level with one of the best, if not the best organizations in the National Basketball Association. And then within the community engagement department, you're working with the team that does the most community events. Um, so I was doing community events with basketball, both at the highest levels. Um, it was incredibly fast paced, incredibly, uh, internally competitive you always had to compete and uh, tap into your athletic side to you know uh, pull off four events in five days um, so it was really intense a lot of fun I mean uh, an incredible amount of fun it also had its less attractive moments where you know you were at a site as early as 5:25 or 5:30 to make sure things were set up for uh, high schoolers or middle schoolers that were going to meet a player. Um, and, you know, you were in charge of making sure the sound was correct, all the uh, props were in place, and everything logistically was sound and ready. Um, so some of those were, not that they weren't glamorous, but when you're on your fourth straight day of doing that, uh, your body is for sure taxed. Um, <laughs> your body and mind so but the Celtics was incredible I mean what what a wonderful experience for somebody who loves basketball for somebody who loves giving back to the community um, uh, second to none now how much interaction did you have with the players the coaches uh, and or members of the front office I mean the you, you, you just wouldn't believe the amount of access you had, uh, especially with the community engagement department. The community engagement department was in charge of, like I mentioned, hosting all these events. And 
all these events always required a special player, celebrity. Um, I, if I if I walk up to Brad Stevens right now, he probably for sure definitely knows me. Um, I always like to tell a story that nobody believes, but I beat Kyrie Irving six to four in a one on one. Um, no, stop he, it. Was he? Did he have his right hand like? No right hand. He used his left or was the? I I don't believe this. I know nobody does. I, you know. I know um, you, you said know. nobody believes it, but I I truly don't believe this. <laughs> okay, that's okay. I mean, I <laughs> what am I gonna do? But, you know, but six to four, six to four, beat Kyrie. Write it down, stamp it. Have it be the quote for <laughs> the attention yeah. grabber for this podcast. Um, no, we had I had so much uh, access and interaction. Brad Stevens. Um, we we did a, a wheelchair clinic with him, um, a legend that you might you might know if you if you're really in the deep deep trenches of Celtic uh, blood flow. If you really bleed green, you might know Satch. Uh, he played with Bill Russell back in the Sat day. Satch Sanders. My yeah, man. I know he, those nice those nice stylish glasses and then the bow tie there. Oh yeah, that, I don't care how old he is, he's still styling. Uh, he he is swagged out and he's. Uh, an incredible person too. So did a lot of events with him, hung out with Leon Poe a bunch. Uh, Leon Poe is the 2008, you know, champion. Um, uh, did he ever game. tell you the story about game two of the finals, 2008? Does he like uh-huh. to re- retell that story? Like, yeah, I just dropped a casual at 20 plus, no big deal. Phil Jackson yeah. mispronounced my name in the press conference, no big deal. <laughs> Oh man, Leon is also someone I played on a one, and this is yeah. I won't elaborate it because people won't believe it, but you know I got a. I didn't. I didn't play offense against him. I just volunteered to play defense, and he didn't score on me. So um, I might. I might have been the Leon pole stopper. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, a, a lot of access to all the players. A lot of uh, incredible front office people who go below the radar that people might not know. Uh, or see on day to day, but they are in charge of making the Boston Celtics what they are and function at the high level standard that all Bostonians and Celtics fans are accustomed to. A lot of incredible uh, front office folks that make it uh, really special on top of all the celebrity names. Now, the, obviously, we know the Boston Celtics are the gold standard for NBA basketball. But talk about, like, for you, it's, I would think this is a crowning achievement. You actually got an article published on the Boston Celtics website. So talk about that article and what event was it and what, what led to it. Give us the whole rundown. Yeah. Um, that event was an event we put on in October, if I'm not mistaken, close to Halloween. And it was an event for – well, something we call, a program we call the Senior Celtics, where um, we go and do a, a workout clinic, a wellness clinic for older individuals. And we had uh, Satch actually lead some of the workouts along with, who was who was a part of that? Um, I think Leon was a part of that as well. Um, but they they lead this workout. Oh, oh, you know who it was? Aaron Baines. Aaron Baines. <laughs> yeah. Aaron Baines 
part of that. And because it was close to Halloween, he came dressed as a Viking and it uh, just fit all too well. Um, <laughs> but he was in there. We were talking about the importance of balance and the importance of uh, adapting your workouts uh, as you continue to age to remain active and you know physically healthy and prepared for things such as falls and slips. Um, and Satch was a great uh, catalyst for that because you know he's in that age group and was able to resonate with some of the older folks. Um, but just to be a part of that event, run the MC, do some of the introductions, uh, see it all unfold, and then to capture that essence and put it into an article and then see that get published on Celtics.com. That was a, a really exciting moment in my young professional career because, you know, at that, you know, I'm, I'm there at that point, maybe almost two months and you're, you're around it. You see the greatness, you see everyone and how hard they were. And that for me was like a stamp of like, wow, this is your tiny grain of sand into the, you know, sea of incredible Celtics history. So it was really, really a big accomplishment for me. All right. Even though you worked for the Celtics, be honest, you're still a Heat fan at heart. Oh, I'm a Heat lifer. You know, uh, I am loyal to a fault. Um, I'm Florida up and down, whether it be basketball, football, uh, what else we got? Hockey, uh, soccer, the new MLS team. I am Florida up and down but one thing uh people don't know my favorite uh, people might not know or don't know my, my favorite color is green so i didn't know like i mentioned my friend that came in 2006 from boston gloating about the celtics and blah 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 um my favorite color was green before i knew anything about basketball i knew i liked the celtics logo i knew i loved that logo for some reason it was probably one of the coolest logos to me in the nba so uh, I am. I, I support the Celtics. I root them on. I, I also bleed green. When, when you spend that much time with an organization and you're deeply woven into this day and, and day uh, activities, you can't, uh, you can't not be a fan. So I'm, I'm a big supporter of the Celtics and uh, I always wish them well, even when they're playing against the Heat, you know, but I am undoubtedly a Heat lifer. Um, no question about it. Part of the heat culture. <laughs> oh, you know, you know. <laughs> well. All right, we'll talk about the transitions. Now, you, you were with the Celtics for the gold standard of the NBA and basketball, professional basketball. And you go to the New England Revolution as somebody who's watched them at growing up. They're kind of like the Buffalo Bills of major league soccer they've been to a few finals and have fallen short unfortunately so talk about that transition leaving the Celtics and going to the revolution <laughs> I remember when I first came in and I was getting introduced <laughs> um just around the office and uh, one of my colleagues said wow you, uh, smart move you left that that boat before it sunk you know as I was coming to the revolution you know um, he said that sarcastically because you know, obviously the Celtics uh, in 2018, that was, made, were one game away from going to the finals um, and they were just incredible. Uh, but that transition was difficult because obviously uh, basketball 
is my, you know, the driving force in a lot of the things I've done athletically. So to transition to soccer, it was brand new, but I was still doing community engagement, community relations with a mix of marketing, which was really exciting to be a part of. Um, <clears throat> my colleagues, again, in the front office were an incredible uh, bunch of people and I learned a lot from them and we had a lot of great memories and put on a lot of great community events. Um, some of my responsibilities there were prepping uh, for match days, two major events. One was the Row of Honor. The Row of Honor is a ceremony that we put on for servicemen and women that are active and inactive. Uh, we collect uh, about five people. Uh, I was in charge of working with the USO and coming up with those individuals and honoring them, giving them uh, you know, some swag and, and just a wonderful experience for them and their families for the incredible service that they provided for this country. And then another, the other uh, major program that I was um, in charge of was the Hero of the Match. I was tasked with finding somebody who did something incredible in the community um, and amplifying their story before each match. So that was really, really cool. Um, two initiatives that I was in charge of, you know, amongst uh, other things like working with the uh, Special League, uh, Special Olympics of Massachusetts, SOMA. Um, they were incredible. We, we did this programming where we had a draft night, uh, you know, pseudo draft night where they would get drafted. They would play for our team and they would play against other club uh, Special Olympics teams. And it was just always so, so much fun to get them in some uh, actual revolution gear to have them do photo shoots with players and, and just have the real experience of being pro athletes that represented us at the Special Olympics level. That's awesome. Now, how busy were your day, days leading up to the whole, a home game? Like, talk about your work week leading up to a home game and then your, what you're doing during home games. Yeah, like uh, the, week, the weeks leading to home games, they vary um, because sometimes you might get hit with, uh, with a week. These are very rare, um, but they do happen. Sometimes you'll have two home games in a week. So you'll have maybe a, a, a strained Wednesday game and then another Saturday game. Um, and the preparation was just, uh, I'd say it wasn't too heavy because you're so forward prepped that um, – you're only fine tuning some things towards the end of the week and adjusting uh, to weather and uh, just game day specific stuff, but uh, busy uh, because you're running also other programs that don't have to do with game day programmatics. One of the ones, the main ones I was running was our donation platform. I was in charge of our in-kind donations. So I would still have to make sure we were hitting the dates for uh, events that people were putting on and some of the in-kind donations they needed if they were uh, if they met our standard for approval had to make sure that they were getting their team autographed ball or team autographed jersey etc in time um, very busy but you were always forward prepped uh, and a lot of fine tuning game days look like the two initiatives I mentioned earlier uh, executing the role of honor and the hero of the match uh, sound kind of simple, but when you consider the immensity 
of uh, Gillette Stadium and you factor in running across uh, you know, one side of the uh, stadium to another within minutes, it's, uh, you know, you got to factor that in. And then a lot of the times it's not just you running around or speed walking. Sometimes you're with guests, you're with special uh, families, you're with people with different abilities to, commu- uh, to travel and, and uh, transport themselves. So you had to take all those into a, account as you were kind of uh, crossing, crossing your uh, T's and dotting your I's. Um, and then there is also the mix of managing game day staff. So we would have people come in just for games where they would help run some of our uh, game day raffles and stuff like that. So that was a lot of fun. Also, again, you know, preparatory kind of leadership. Just uh, match days were pretty hectic. Didn't really watch a ton of the games, some matches or most matches. Um, and you're just running from spot to spot, location to location, executing, execution to execution. Uh, by the end of the day, on a typical revolution day, game day, I probably walked 17K. So that's... Uh, got that Fitbit going, huh? Got the steps or the, in. Or the Apple Watch, whatever you have. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I use the Apple Watch, but we were all we would all compete and see who was at where and at what time did they get to the last stadium? Well, did they uh, did they walk extra when they didn't need to? Um, we we all all the front office staff people would compete. Uh, that was a fun competition, friendly competition we would have. But seventeen K definitely left sore yeah. after everything. <laughs> all right, so very little known fact, and by little known, I mean fact that I know by myself and nobody else knows. I went to a revolution game last year against Chicago. Mm-hmm. Was hoping to see Schweinsteiger play because he plays for my favorite club, Bayern. Used to. Mm-hmm. Now he's retired. Didn't have enough playing. However, but before the match, and I'm thinking like an hour or two before the match, I went with my family. We we go inside, I think, where the cinema is because they have the bathrooms there. Yeah. I saw you walk by, and I'm like, oh, my God, that's Jordan. Wait, I had to do a double take. I'm like, yeah, yep, that's Jordan. And I'm like, do I want to say, what's up, what's up? Oh, and I'm like, no, nah, my man's working right now. I, th- I think I'll leave him be. Yeah. <laughs> you should have said what's up, but don't worry. Um, once all this uh, COVID is done and uh, off for, I'll, I'll get us some tickets to uh, – uh, I'll get you and your family some tickets to a Chicago Revolution, a uh, Chicago Fire match whenever they get back in town. Um, get you four sweet tickets and have you have a good time over there. Sounds good, man. And last but not least, any advice for anyone looking to get into the professional sports organization business? Not Not playing, obviously, but the actual nitty gritty of working for a professional sports organization. Uh, polish your soft skills, polish your hard skills. Um, at the end of the day, people have to like who they work with. Not all the time, it won't be you know perfect situation, but when you have some undeniable skills that you can offer uh, and execute at a high clip, uh, you become instantly valuable. Um, I think building genuine relationships is second to none. Uh, 
because uh, you got to think all these professional folks that work in front office and the pro athletes, they have, they see a lot of faces um, that day. You probably saw me running around. I was probably with a group of people or trying to, you know, hopping to the next spot. We just see a lot of people and we talk to a lot of people and a lot of people are interested and you got to differentiate yourself by how deeply you try to pursue a real uh, authentic relationship. And I, I would recommend have your LinkedIn up to speed, have your resume polished as much as possible and updated regularly, uh, get those spell checks, um, see once you reach out to folks, connect something they've recently done as an organization or individually and talk about how maybe that relates to you or how that relates to something you've done in the past or something you hope to do in the future. Um, before I got my stint with the Boston Celtics, I was communicating with them regularly for two years with the director of uh, community engagements for two years, um, letting him know, hey, I'm interning at the Highland Street. Hey, this is what I'm working on. Hey, what do you think? Uh, I should be looking to improve while I'm here. Hey, I saw this was an incredible game that the Celtics had also. I saw this incredible event that, you know, was put on too. You know, um, you got to make these connections and try to spark a conversation uh, that, that'll be genuine to you and that uh, speaks true to your uh, interest. Um, because there's so many people reaching out to these folks. That's good. That's awesome. Now, I hate to do it. I I really do. But it's just something I it's important that we have to do. And people will say, but your podcast is a sports show. No, well, at times like these, we can't just stick to sports. So I wanted to talk to you specifically about the social justice movement going on right now. Talk did your family growing up have to talk to you about racism in America, especially you immigrating over from Cuba? Did I, anybody in your family have to talk to you about racism? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I look back and see things um, that were taught to me even from a young age. Um, I'm not a I'm not a traditional, I, I would say, American in terms of I came from Cuba, so the experience was a little different. I'm Afro-Cuban. Um, so some of the teachings I were I was taught was taught uh, I was taught not historically but just functionally. And I mean what I mean by that is when they taught me to do some things, it wasn't so much related to the history. It was more so, hey, this is just what it is and this is how we have to kind of move. One of the earliest lessons I remember was coming from Cuba, my grandma <clears throat> telling me, hey, make sure you keep your hands behind uh, your back when you're in a store so people won't think that you're trying to take anything. Um, so that was an early lesson I learned. Um, fast forward to Morehouse, being in an HBU, HBCU was a completely different experience because when I went to a Walmart, it was my first time being invisible. And what, what I mean by that is everyone was black, you know, um, Everyone, the cashier was black, the shoppers were black, uh, the owners were black. So 
I was one of my first times. I didn't have to put my hands anywhere. I I was a nobody, you know, um, and that felt kind of really liberating. Now, what forms of racism did you face growing up? Uh, growing up, I think uh, growing up, I guess stereotyping, you know, was uh, probably one of the most prominent ones. Once you grow up, you know, people is just easier to compartmentalize you into a box and say, hey, you're this or you're that, you know, um, be this way or you're supposed to be that way because you're X, Y, and Z. So stereotyping was probably one of the most common um, forms of racism that I experienced. Now, what forms of racism did you face specifically when you went to LaSalle? Because like you said, at Morehouse, you kind of just blended in. But at LaSalle, you, you, you're more likely to stick out. So what forms of racism did you face there while you were a student, or even now today? Yeah, I think uh, the form of racism that I experienced was honestly the form that I hate the most, and it's um, microaggression. I just really dislike um, kind of subtle things being said in the mix of a of a good conversation or, uh, you know, of a joyous moment, like you're in the mix or having fun or you're just talking, hanging out. And then like something comes out, whether intentional or unconscious, and you're just like, oh, wow, that kind of means more than, you know, what it intended or it was intended to be uh, a lesser blow, but the message was delivered. That Those are some of the forms of racism that really um, bother me um, just because they, they they attempt to be they, they it's an it's a poor attempt at hiding racism um and anyone who's experienced it or has you know just uh is aware of what's going on you know that that is like blatant in your face blaring red um racism so that's some of the ones i don't like and that i've experienced and another form is you know with some of the success i've had uh with LaSalle and, you know, some trophies I've gotten, like um, the LaSalle Bowl and the Torchbearer Award. I've gotten a lot of backhanded compliments sometimes, you know, that, you know, don't say a lot about me, but say a lot about the person, like, oh, wow, you're so well-spoken, or, oh, wow, you're so well put together, and things like that. And you kind of hear that, and you try to, at least I do, I try to um, side on the positive side a lot of times. But when you you hear like consistent message after message like that and like fogged racism or uh, involuntarily you know ignorant, um, uh, it, it, there's a lot to bear. Is there a specific incident, whether it's growing up or even recently, the specific incident of racism you face that sticks out to you? Uh, you know, uh, like these times, uh, there's a positive within these times because the truth is in a lot of people's faces rather than, and, uh, you know, just a select few. Um, but to be honest, once you experience it for so long and you see that nobody or few people, uh, 
are alarmed by it or moved, um, they kind of all just blend together, you know? So we're living almost a double experience at the same time, whether it be like execution of work, execution of homework, uh, execution of projects, whatever, and also dealing with, hey, I just saw somebody that, you know, looks like me, my uncle, my cousin, blah, 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 et cetera, uh, get murdered. Uh, and they, they won't be, the, the killers won't be reprimanded, you know, most likely. Uh, those things are exhausting, honestly. And it's, uh, it takes a long time to figure out, and you never quite figure out, but it takes a long time to figure out how to find a good balance between those those things. Every day you pull up to execute something and you have both of these things tugging at you. And one day, you know, or one week or a month or last two months, like just now, uh, the other side wins and you're really down in the pits. So it's a, it's a strong balance, not one specific uh, incident, but a, a whole lot of experiences. If I did have to say one specific instance though, that really, shattered my heart at a young age uh, was when Trayvon Martin was uh, murdered and uh, and Joe Zimmerman being acquitted. That that really had a humongous impact on, on me. Now, do you feel, have you ever, or do you feel comfortable speaking out against social injustice issues? And if so, when did you start feeling comfortable like, hey, I got to speak out on this and I don't care if repercussions be damned. I mean, it's a, for me, it's a balance, you know, Chris, like, like I mentioned to you, I've never been around white people, Caucasians, you know, Europeans, whatever, uh, before coming up here to Boston. And still, I'm always outnumbered in my heart, in my mind. I know what's right. Um, and you have to balance or I have to balance personally how much my heart gets into it because it's painful, you know, and then it's painful. And like, I'm probably the only person that's going to feel this way, especially to this intensity and for the extended amount of time. So sometimes you talk about it with those who you know care and that they try to make a change and around others, like you just know what, or, uh, you know, what part of the journey they're in for how they're learning about racism or how they deal with racism or don't deal with it. So you kind of maneuver it um, for your own well-being. Um, at least that's what I do. I always try to speak truth um, and more so than speak truth. I try not to point a condemning finger like, hey, that's racist, you're racist, or don't do this or don't do that. Because to be honest, uh, systemic racism works when we're sleeping. And so we all have some things to unlearn all the time. And it's always a moving target and a evolving top uh, form. Uh, so I try not to point a finger. I try to be understanding of, of you know, those and the different parts of their journeys that they're at. And when, I, when I'm not as understanding, I just try to keep to myself because that's, uh, for now, myself and people that care about me, because as of now, that's uh, some of the healthiest practices that I've had. Now, did you take part in any of the uh, social justice protests that happened this year? 
uh, you know, with COVID, this was really hard. I, I haven't left my house only for, I've only gone out for groceries. So um, making a decision to participate in peaceful protests was very hard. Uh, but I ended up doing so. I participated in the Boston, uh, in the downtown Boston uh, march that uh, was on the news everywhere. And then I participated in uh, another march here in Waltham, uh, close to Watertown, where I live now. And both were incredibly impactful, incredibly necessary. I, I think, um, you know, when you look at some of the sacrifices of folks who have helped move or get us to this junction, um, it would be a disservice, I think, you know, depending on what, what you believe in, but to not go in and make some sacrifices. I know, you know, the courage of a John Lewis, uh, how can this even compare, you know, to some of the things that he endured and so many others endured. So I thought it was my due diligence to be on that side of history, despite there being a pandemic. So despite me not going out and developing some agoraphobia uh, throughout this whole thing, uh, I said, I have to stand for this. Now talk, talk about the atmosphere of these protests and how the important, just further emphasizing the importance of being part of the social justice movement. Yeah, I mean, the, there was an unrest, you know, uh, in this entire country, there was a tension there's a, there was a collectiveness of people from all backgrounds that were just sick of violence towards uh, black people. Breonna Taylor, what can we say? George Floyd, uh, you know, Ahmaud Arbery. I mean, the, 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 we could keep, go I can keep going. You know, and it can um, go even further back to Michael Brown, Philando Castile, all yeah. the, or any yeah. other unnamed African American that's yeah. been harmed by the police. Yeah, I, any uh, any other person in general. Yeah, it just recently happened. So uh, there, the, uh, this is a problem that it was nice to see so many people just sick of it. You know, sick of it, uh, and so many people being able to devote some time to it, uh, for better, for worse, via COVID. You know, a lot of the times people are in the mix and bustling, hustling and bustling, churn, burning and churning. And while they care, they can't stop or, or, or haven't stopped or haven't made time to really look and dive deep, take a deeper dive into it. So it was, it was awesome to be in those environments where so many people were just right, uh, fighting for liberty and for us as a country to stand for some of the things that we uh, hold near and dear to our, our creed. Yeah, I, I kind of, there's part of me that feels, I don't know if it's bad. I don't know what the right word is. As I did want to join, I, I support the movement. I just, it's like you said, with the COVID pandemic and I still live at home and I have, I've had heart problems my mom has respiratory issues and I just, as much as the greater good is, I want to help out the people who are most affected, especially the African-American community and Latinos. There's also a part of me that's like, I don't want to 
endanger the health of my immediate family. Right. You know, and, and those are decisions that we have to all kind of calculate and make, but uh, there's so many ways to be impactful other than going out there and being in a protest, which was where I was standing at, at first because I have had some health issues too, where I've had problems breathing and I don't know if, you know, a respiratory virus this severe would be something uh, my body can withstand. Uh, but I had to make that decision. And, you know, it's it's not a mean of, you don't get a, a badge or a trophy for attending these things, you know, like you said, you stand for the cause and you believe, you know, that black lives matter, uh, Latino lives matter, uh, Latinx, uh, LGBTQ, you know, everybody matters, you know. Um, so there's ways to impact that without physically being there. You know, you're, you're doing it by breaking some of this segment and your sport podcast uh, to talk about some trending topics, and that's important. And other people have to leverage and find their angles to contribute to moving this thing along, you know, inch by inch. And I'll be honest, when I first heard of the Black Lives Matter movement, the first reaction is, well, all lives matter. And that, I, maybe it's the white person in me, but or my personal thinking, I was like, well, shouldn't all lives matter? But what I've learned is it's like, there's a word that's missing from it. Black Lives Matter too. T-O-O. Their lives matter just as much as any other person. And it's something that I would that I had to learn, I don't know if it was the hard way, but I, I, it's something I had to learn and I've had to reprogram the way I think about it. Yeah, well, some words, you know, like some words have physical effects on people that feel like pain or, uh, you know, you just got physically hit, you know, and some of those, these tough topics, depending on who you are or what part of your journey you are in and learning these things can yield those results, you know, where you're, you're kind of paralyzed, kind of scared, you don't want to say the right, wrong or right thing, or, you know, or you have those initial reactions that later uh, maybe change or, um, or further develop down as time progresses. But, you know, the important thing is, like I said, not to reprimand people, I think, because first of all, like, Chris, I, I need your help, you know? We need your help. We need you to be on board. Um, and we need people like you and people like me to be on board and working together. So uh, to do that, we have to understand that different people are in different parts of their journeys. It's tough when, you know, like some of those things that you may have learned just now, like I had to learn, you know, at five or four. Um, and, you know, it could be frustrating, but with the same token that, um, I have to understand different people's journeys. Other folks have to also understand as much as they can the frustration of people, you know, um, because on one hand it's, it's hard to learn and on the other hand is hard to live, you know, by these same topics we're talking about. So, um, you know, just a collective uh, effort towards learning and then not denying adding a layer to who you are you know like you thought a was true and then you got some new information and you allowed it you allowed yourself to add that new layer to who chris was i think that's 
so important and true to who we are as humans because no matter what, time goes forward. And the only thing that's constant is change. And had you neglected that change with new information, that's when I think, um, you know, we needed to have maybe a different conversation or you had to take some different steps. But, you know, some folks are struggling with allowing that layer to come in. And I think uh, that's understandable, first of all, because if you go your whole life hearing one message and all of a sudden it's turned upside down and told that it's, you know, completely wrong. And then you, you kind of realize that it's fatal. You know, your ignorance is fatal uh, to other groups of people. And you're like, okay, well, I can make this adjustment. You know, hey, uh, maybe maybe it's time for a change if people are being, you know, brutalized. And it's it's the willingness to change, I think, at your own pace. Let's talk about an important topic. Uh, four years ago, around this time, there was an election. Yeah. Did Did you happen to vote for the 2016 election? Absolutely. It's uh, you know, it's the first uh, election I was able to be a part of. Um, I think it's my it's the responsibility of every citizen to you know, have their voice be heard. And um, I most definitely was uh, voted in that uh, election and plan to vote in all future elections. Um, it's not only a must, um, but it is a privilege. Um, you know, as some of my family members are still waiting to become citizens, they haven't been able to have their voices and opinions heard. And so, you know, once that's hanging in the balance, you're like, okay, not only is it my obligation as a citizen, it's also a privilege that uh, my, some of my family members don't get to, you know, experience. Uh, I've, I voted in the 2016 election, <clears throat> but what, one of the tough things though is voting in the local election. Cause you think, well, the federal election is, has such a high importance that the voter turnout is going to be much higher. Whereas the local level, it's, it's just as important and it's tough to even consider or think that way, but it really is. If you look at the cases we have now, especially now with Minneapolis, the Minneapolis incident and George Floyd yeah. and everywhere else. Yeah. Um, being involved in municipal elections is uh, an immediate way to have, immediate change within your very own community um, and being in tune with what's happening, you know, in your backyard. Uh, I encourage everyone and anyone who listens to this to try to get involved. Uh, and when you get involved in some of these, like, like Chris mentioned, um, there's a low turnout rate. Trust me, your opinion and your voice is going to be heard and considered. And you are speaking for your city, town, you know, um, so I encourage everyone to get involved in municipal elections. Um, like you mentioned, they there's a huge, huge um, impact on what happens based on who gets their voice heard in those elections. And I think it's important too, especially with the way our gov the U.S. government is set up. If 
people can come together as a group of one, the collective group of one can take down an individual one. And I think that's very important, especially for this upcoming election. Absolutely. I, I think, uh, you know, whoever you're for, you should come out, you know, you should come out and, 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 and salute because no matter what, that's the beauty of this country is the freedom. And, you know, it should be you with your opinion and me with mine. And we should bring it to the ballots. They should be tallied up, you know, whether it's via mail or in person. And, you know, the winner is the people, the people who choose, you know, we the people are the ones who choose. So, uh, again, encourage everyone to get out and vote. Um, you know, with that is also, I think there's some uh, blanket statement to that. There's uh, people who haven't been accounted for with, um, uh, you know, the census. There's people who are scared to fill out the census. If anyone's listening, encourage all of you to fill that out. Uh, it's been extended to, I believe, October 31st in the census. Uh, so fill that out because it, it's important to where resources are allocated. Also, um, you know, there, there is voter suppression that uh, it's not just as easy sometimes to say, hey, Chris, go vote. Hey, Jordan, go vote. You know, some places have some obstacles. Some places require you to leave work. Some people uh, can't take a day off at work. Um, some people can't afford an hour off, you know, midday or don't have the transportation. So I think trying to make voting as accessible for uh, everyone who has the right to vote um, is, is a way we should go. And also giving, uh, reconsidering or reevaluating what voting laws look like for formerly incarcerated citizens. Um, I think that's a, a highly unrepresented population that is very in tune too with a lot of things that are happening. So now I want to talk to you about well, combine sports and the social justice movement. Yep. What do you think of how organizations such as the NBA, the NFL are handling the social justice movement? Uh, similar to the similar to our communities, uh, the effect effectiveness and preparation for it varies. Obviously, we can tip our hats off to the NBA, and we can kind of see you know, a lot of areas where the NFL has to grow, you know, and depending on who you're talking to, we can also pinpoint some areas where the NBA has a lot of area to grow um, and and how they can still continue to increase their diversity. Um, and the NFL too, they, they may have some things that, that they're doing well right now. So, uh, I personally like to tip my hat off to the to the NBA. I think they are doing the best out of all professional leagues. I think they also embrace uh, some of the things that we talked about earlier, like allowing themselves to add layers to what they do and how they do it. Um, and that's so important because this isn't a you know an equation that you figure out and you set you set it down and it's E equals MC squared and that's the equation for all. You know this is ever evolving um, and the NBA and Adam Silver and the Players Coalition uh, led by Chris Paul and Kyrie Irving, um, they do a really good job of getting 
uh, the general consensus of the NBA players uh, and trying to find one answer that uh, covers a majority of the percentage of those involved. My final question. So I, other than listening, which is what the vast majority of people have been saying, especially when I go on CNN and I see Van Jones, Bakari Sellers, and everybody talking about the social justice movement listening, what else can I do as a white person, as an American, to help bring positive change for the African-American and Latino community? Uh, I challenge you to interview, you know, continue interviewing a diverse crowd of individuals, uh, whether it be uh, creed, orientation, uh, what level of the career they're in, um, interest in sports, involvements in sports. I challenge you to continue having a diverse crowd of people and continue to dig. I think you, I think you've done a great job so far. I urge you to continue and to challenge yourself a little a little more. Um, uh, once you feel like you hit uh, like you hit a plateau uh, uh, in terms of what you know related to this topic, challenge yourself to go deeper um, and, and and try not to to stop. You know, unless it's impeding your health and you just need a break. Uh, but once you hit in that second plateau or that third or, you know, whatever number you want to put on it, I urge you not to point a finger at other Caucasian, Blacks, Whites, uh, you know, and different ethnicity groups and do some more listening and try to understand and reason and also ultimately uh, realize that people are different. And if, if this topic means a lot to you because some people benefit and some people die because of it um then continue pushing along because you know scolding someone isn't isn't always the best method uh, even if you outdo them verbally or have uh you know facts readily available did you make a change or did you win an argument was it for you or was it for a lifestyle you gotta uh, try to help people move along with a lifestyle kind of view on things. And, um, you know, and some of the most immediate people you can start with, I think is, or one can start with is their family members. I think we can all have conversations, understand viewpoints and try to add a layer of information to what's already there. Um, that's what I would say. And I guess if, it, if I had to add one final thing, um, what would it be? You know, I'll say this, I'll leave the listeners with this. A bullet or a knee aren't the only things killing black people. No, microaggressions, racism, a joke, the, you know, if you don't stand up when a joke is said, you know, and you claim to have a black friend or a Indian friend or a Latino friend, etc. the Middle Eastern friend, and you don't stand up during a joke, that also is synonymous with that bullet in somebody's back, that knee on George Floyd's neck, you know, those microaggressions that aren't addressed, and all that, where you may have a voice, those also do killings too. So 
you know, because the next day the employee, the colleague, the friend has to pull up to the same institution and they're coming physically, but spiritually and mentally, they're not there. So I urge you to speak out, you know, whenever you feel ready and available. And when you don't, try to challenge yourself. Absolutely. My final thoughts, this is really the first time I've gone in depth talking about this because mm -hmm. I'm not one of those people. It just seems whenever you get into an argument, it's about who can stick out their chest the furthest, who can yell the loudest and they win the argument. That's not, that's just not my style. If I'm going to argue or at least have a conversation, I want to have the information and I want to have something to back me up. And if you want to yell and scream about it, that's your prerogative, but it's not the way I go about it. And also with social media, it's just, social media is just a dark place that it just sucks you in. And there are plenty of times where I've wanted to tweet, especially in support. And maybe I sh probably should have, but at that time it was just, what good, what good does a tweet do? Cause there's, cause there's always that thought in the back of my head where, okay, you sent out a tweet. That's cool. What more are you doing? What more are you doing? And that constant thought in the back of my head is what more are you doing? And that just kind of like gets my, my hands in my head. I'm like, Oh, I'm not doing enough. And that's, for me, it hasn't brought me to action as much as it should. It's left me like constantly thinking and listening and just learning a lot more than I ever imagined. Yeah, no, I think uh, just to add to that, if I may, um, there, there's different, there's, as you continue to develop and others continue to develop, we have to understand that some of the communication styles have been under a Eurocentric format, meaning, uh, you know, we'll listen to somebody who isn't screaming or isn't, um, you know, per se expressing themselves like we are right now or disagreeing like we may or others may, um, and we'll disregard them. But, you know, as we continue on peeling back some unconscious biases and stuff like that, we realize that, hey, different people communicate differently. Like, um, if I were talking to you in Spanish, or if you saw me and some of my family members speak, you might say, hey, are they uh, angry with each other? Or are they loud? Why are they so loud? And it's just the way we speak. And um, there's Afrocentric uh, ways to speaking and learning that aren't so prevalent in the United States because, you know, for so long it's been Eurocentric. You do it this way and this is the right way. And I just urge you to try to be open to, um, you know, people that don't speak you know, uh, uh, in the, in the manner that we're speaking right now, um, because, uh, some people, like I said, I'm trying to understand and reason with everyone and what part of the journey they're in with their, yeah, um, understanding of racism, you got to understand and other folks have to understand frustration. You know, this isn't easy. It takes preparation. It takes two and three days of preparation before a conversation, you know, um, uh, and when you're constantly having it, you know, you, you, you get pushed a little more and a little more. And 
maybe on that day that person was having a bad day or maybe that's just the way they talk you know and we just gotta learn how to cross those borders and boundaries and have these uh global conversations with an assortment of people so that's one thing i'll leave you with and then on the other hand with the um distinguishing yourself on social media i agree with you i think some of the tweets are maybe empty some of them are performative however uh for example, someone like me walking around LaSalle, I had no, I'm, I'm outnumbered in terms of numbers of who is white and who isn't. And I don't, I have no way of saying, hey, this person is not racist. Hey, this person is racist. I have no way. Nobody has a badge or a shirt or, a, you know, uh, a symbol. So while they may seem as you should do more, also consider like, hey, you've distinguished yourself as a committed ally, you know, which might or might not urge you to tweet or post, you know, it's up to you at the end of the day. But I'll tell you this, uh, silence, I still believe is violence. And I think um, silence too makes it hard for anyone, you know, if they're looking at this deep, dark, you know, thing that social media is a lot of the time it's like, hey, I don't know. You didn't, you didn't say anything. I don't know. How am I supposed to know? You know, um, there's no way of knowing. So, and we're not talking every day, so we have no idea. So, uh, it's always important not only for these causes, but for your personal brand to distinguish yourself uh, as much as you can on social, uh, whether it be LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, Facebook, Instagram. You know, just continue to develop your brand uh, as you see fit. And as you and in a place where you think it might not jeopardize uh, your career, if you think your career will be jeopardized uh, by supporting Black Lives Matter, then maybe you gotta uh, see what values outweigh which, you know. Um, but it's up to the individual person every time. Well, Jordan, I I appreciate the feedback. Now let's get into something. A little more let's just say it's a little more fun and a little more easy going so what i like to do with my guests is i like to flip the script what it is is i usually i've been the one asking the questions today i've been making a few more statements than usual but i'd like to give you the opportunity to ask me a few questions that I can answer. So floor is yours, Jordan. I want to know about uh, your process of applying, going through and graduating from graduate school, if you don't mind. So we'll start with the process. My senior year at LaSalle, I'll be quite honest, the beginning of it, I had, I didn't have any consideration of grad school. I knew it, I kind of figured I had to do it. I just didn't know exactly what to do. But I was lucky that I had an internship at Baldwin Catholic High School because shout out to Brianna Robbins. She interned there and she she interned in the athletic department and she worked there. So I had a connection and I was like, I need an internship. I'm gonna I'm gonna go intern there. And because I really enjoy sports and I enjoy not just being a part of it, but just what it means to so many people and how it can connect people that 
I realized, hey, this is something that I wanted to do, especially at the high school level, where at the high school level, you're really, it kind of, you, you develop the love for the game, maybe, or maybe even earlier, but it really comes full force. Like, you really love the game, and you may not have formal instruction or whatever, but you still love the play. You love going out with your friends, competing at a high level, hopefully. And through that internship, I got to meet Patrick Driscoll, who's the athletic director there, who now is the athletic director at Austin Prep. He is an adjunct professor at Endicott College for the master's program. It's called sports leadership now, but at the time when I applied, it was athletic administration. And I sent in an application. He gave me a recommendation. His administrative assistant gave me a recommendation. And I thought at that point, it's a done deal. And right away that summer, 2018, after I graduated, I hit the ground running. Even even though I took a family trip to Germany because my mom's from there. I, uh, some really small town called Poppenlauer. Really small. You'd have to find it on Google Maps. Anyways, get start, hit the ground running. Even though I'm, I'm in Germany, I still find the Wi-Fi wherever I can get it. Pound out the assignments, pass it in, get back into the States, and then continue. And I would take I take like an average of maybe three to four classes a semester if I'm lucky, because I'm one of those people. It's once I get this, once I get started and I get my feet going, I hit the ground running and like let's go. And luckily, I was able to f- finish this summer, despite having to do my internship remotely from home. I still, I still wouldn't trade that experience for anything. And kudos to you uh, for our listeners that aren't in grad school or haven't experienced grad school. Some of the perks of working online are that you can be in Polkenauer, uh, Germany, doing banging out assignments. Uh, but some of the drawbacks that I don't think, uh, you know, he gave himself enough credit for is uh, these classes are extremely demanding. And when you're taking three and four of them, I mean, you really, everyone should just you know, tip their hat off to Chris when they see him for his incredible accomplishment. I definitely, uh, salute you for that and it takes a lot of grit and uh focus to be able to pull that off so congrats to you on that it it takes a lot of time management and spacing out time considering i was also coaching middle school soccer and during the winter i helped Mm. out with basketball filming games so especially on away games you're away for quite a few hours and my big thing is if i have a writing assignment or any kind of PowerPoint assignment, make an outline. What mm. what what do I need? All right. So I'm creating my own facility. All right. What facility do I want to create? Mm. Okay. How many seats am I going to have? Where's mm. the press box going to be? What kind of turf am I going to have? Yes. I'm I'm making all of these outlines beforehand, and then when it comes time to making the presentation, I have it all mapped out, and it's just a matter of plug and place. That's a, that's a, I'm going to jot that down. Outlines are similar to some of the stuff I've been echoing right down the line with preparation. You got to prepare, 
you know, for what you're going to do. And first you got to have a blueprint to be able to adjust it or adapt it accordingly. So that's, that's incredible. And again, I'm so, so proud and excited for you and what's to come uh, post this uh, master's degree. This uh, is an incredible accomplishment. Um, I want to transition into my next question, which is, can you dive into the process of running this webinar, podcast, seminar, and, uh, you know, just executing it from, you know, bare bones to what it is now? So I, my thing is, during the pandemic, one of the tough things is you're trying to there's obviously the social distancing, but you don't want to legitimately, like literally social distance. Like, right. cause we, as humans, we need that social contact yeah, to feel. Not social distance. Yeah, exactly. It's more physical distance. It shouldn't be social distance where we're separating ourselves from the outside world. It's yeah. good to have a conversation with people, even for the introverts. It's, it's nice to have a conversation with people, but I'm looking up for content ideas for my internship, especially since most of the stuff is online. Um, my internship supervisor told me his biggest advice was go look at other college programs, see what they're doing. And you can try to implement it at the high school level because what usually what the college programs are doing are forward thinking. So I go on Twitter, I look at UNC and the, one of the first things I see at that time, I see the fist bump there. I'm also a UNC guy because yeah. I mean, Michael Jordan. I'm telling you. I'm Michael telling Jordan. You. I love UNC. No. But anyway, anyways, coach, there was a little video link where Coach Williams is having this little, like what we're having now, like a little webinar with Danny Green and I forget who else was in the NBA. They're having a little webinar and it's like, and then I hear Charles Barkley talk about, oh, he was on a podcast with Coach Cal from Kentucky. And I'm like, podcast? Now that would be something to try. There's the light bulb. Now, mm -hmm. I try, I tried to get it started for my internship. At that point, I was running out of time for the internship, but it was def I still was able to create like an outline, almost a business plan kind of deal for mm -hmm. them to implement. But for me, I need, I need as much reps as I can speaking. And also I, sports is a great way to connect with people. And you can learn so much, not just you to me, but me to you as well. So that's that's why I started Newton's Laws of Sports. And it also helps that there's some guy named Isaac Newton that I made a play, play on words off of. So He's a big cousin, right? Yeah. He's a bit <laughs> of a nerd. I, we didn't get along. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I checked was in the same room when I was uh, playing Kyrie. <laughs> um, my final question is, who who is your favorite sports announcer or interviewer? That's a good question. Sports announcer, by far Kevin who? Harlan. 
Kevin Harlan. Kevin Harlan. Oh my god. <laughs> the most random thing could just set up like his the tone of voice just goes higher and higher. And I can <laughs> yeah. remember last year when they're playing at Milwaukee, like right off game after the all-star break, everybody's missing shots. Marcus Morris runs into the stands. Guy spills a beer. Kevin Harlan goes off like, he spilled the beer. <laughs> it's the Miller High Life. And I'm like, oh, this is too good. Or, or the one where he's on national radio and he's broadcasting Monday Night Football. And like, there's a random dude that's running on the field and he's broadcasting that. It's like, the guy is on the field. He's bear testing and everything. He's at the 40. He's at the 30. He's at the 20. He turns it around. They can't catch him. Oh, <laughs> they tackle him. That's and then a few seconds later, he's like, congrats, buddy. You got a night in the clink. <laughs> I was like, this, this dude is this dude you know full who, there. <laughs> you know who's uh, that kind of uh, entertaining? Uh, Taylor Twelman is pretty wonderful <laughs> oh, yeah. on, uh, on the behind the mic. He always puts me in stitches. <laughs> and then I think other than that, I mean, the inside the NBA guys, the TNT guys, just in yeah. general, the whole crew, Ernie, Shaq, Charles, Kenny, that yeah. whole crew, man, they're very smart, but they're also like, they're not restricted to like, let's just talk about basketball. It's like, Oh, if we're going to poke fun at somebody, we're going to poke fun at somebody. Yeah. So it's a nice change of pace. And usually it happens to Charles Barkley, who can handle it the best. Right, right. Uh, yeah, they definitely play by a different set of rules and always keep it very exciting. <laughs> and, then, and then the final analyst, I would say, is Jalen Rose. Love his commentary. Jalen Rose. Is- you, he's an outside-the-box thinker, which I do appreciate. Yeah. I really uh, – who that do it for me is Skip and Shannon. Um, oh. you know, I love, love Shannon. I think he does a great job of uh, representing, feel uh, to some one version of Black culture uh, at a professional scene, and also going back and forth really well with Skip. Um, I really appreciate that aspect of it, and uh, I love uh, you know his inside take on on just sports, especially basketball. I think. Uh, Obviously, he's a little skewed for LeBron. Uh, <laughs> no, just a little bit. <laughs> a tiny bit, but uh, he's so, uh, you know, he's electric. He's electric, and I think he he's managed to marry his personality with um, talking about sports really well. And how could I forget Stephen A. Smith? I mean, my goodness, how could, how could I forget Stephen A. Smith? The blasphemy is ridiculous. Oh, I it, <laughs> It's blasphemy for even to put him last, even though I can spin it as I save the best for last, right? Yeah. Well, you know he'd come for your neck. If- <laughs> oh, I know he would come for my neck. <laughs> oh, uh, anyways, this concludes this week's episode of Newton Laws Newton's Laws of Sports with Jordan Villalone as my guest this week. Jordan, it's been a pleasure. It's been fun. It's been serious. It's been very thoughtful. And I appreciate you coming on once again. So thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm proud of you. I, I admire everything that you're doing. So keep up the great work. All right.
Thank you. Thank you for listening to this special episode of Newton's Laws of Sports. I'd like to once again thank Jordanville alone for joining, and I appreciate his insight. Stay tuned for more episodes in the future of Newton's Laws of Sports, which you can find on Spotify. Thank you.